Dealing with moral issues in a fair and balanced way is never easy. This is especially true since many contemporary moral questions are of such a highly personal nature. However, in his book, An Introduction to Catholic Ethics since Vatican II, published by Cambridge University Press, Dr. Andrew Kim does an excellent job of sensitively introducing the Catholic Church's teaching on moral issues and the reasoning behind them. Through his deep knowledge of Catholic moral theology and an ability to explain different concepts through easy-to-understand metaphors, Dr. Kim has written a rich and thought-provoking book that will be useful for anyone interested in gaining a better understanding of Catholic ethics, as well as for those who have to teach it to undergraduates. I hope you'll enjoy the interview. Thanks for listening. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Christian Studies. I'm Dr. Franklin Rausch of Lander University, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Andrew Kim about his new book, An Introduction to Catholic Ethics since Vatican II, published by Cambridge University Press. Uh, Drew, welcome to the show. Hi, Frank. Thanks for having me. Well, it's great. Uh, Thanks for joining us. I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself. Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, my name is, is Andrew Kim, uh, like you said, and I grew up in, in Southern California, and I was actually raised uh, an evangelical Christian, um, and then when I was in college, I, I went away from the faith for a period of time, and uh, basically wasn't wasn't practicing, and then I, I had a conversion experience in my mid-20s. And part of that was occasioned by reading C.S. Lewis. Uh, in particular, I read Mere Christianity, and then that got me more interested in theology, and so I started studying a lot of theology in an informal way. Uh, Lewis led me to Augustine and Aquinas and thinkers such as those, and so eventually that ended up with me visiting uh, St. Louis Parish uh, in Seattle, Washington, after I got out of the Navy, and uh, and that started a process of becoming Catholic, and at the same time that I was entering the church, I was also starting a master's degree in theology at, at Union Theological Seminary in, in New York City, which is the affiliate uh, seminary of Columbia, so I ended up being confirmed in the church that year, and um, meeting my wife the same year, who was received into the church the next year, we were married, and we now have uh, four children, Theodore, and then our daughters, Lucy, Zoe, and Phoebe, and we have another daughter named Moira, who's due next month on June 20th. Um, Congratulations. Well, thanks, Frank. Um, yeah, and then after that, I went to uh, the Catholic University of America to get my Ph.D., and there I studied mainly moral theology and ethics, and um, my my main focus was on the, the virtue thought of St. Thomas Aquinas, and I studied there under Dr. William Madison III and ended up writing a dissertation on Aquinas' theory about what's it's called the unity of the virtues. It'll probably come up again when I'm discussing the book. It basically has to do with Aquinas' thinking relative to the integration of the moral self. Um, and then from there, after completing my, my dissertation, I went to Walsh University, where I currently am, in North Canton, Ohio, and I'm an assistant professor here, um, and, and yeah, that's, that, that's about it. Right. Excellent. So, um, I mean, so your specialty then is in ethics. Correct. And what, do you teach a lot of ethics courses at Walsh? Yeah, I teach uh, well, I teach one Catholic moral life course every semester for the undergraduates, which is your basic introductory Catholic ethics course. And then I also teach every other semester a graduate master's level course in Catholic moral theology ethics, where we where we go a little bit deeper uh, than than we would in the undergraduate course. But I, you know, then I also teach the introductory courses to scripture and tradition, and I teach an honors history of Christianity course also. And how does this book then connect to your teaching? How does my book connect to my teaching? Yes. Uh, well, basically, um, yeah, well... One of my main motivations for writing the book was that I, I had been teaching the Catholic, some sort of version of a Catholic uh, moral theology intro course for several years, because when I was finishing my doctorate, I was adjuncting at Georgetown, and I adjuncted also at Loyola University, Maryland, and I was using 
when I first started, just one book um, supplemented by primary sources, but that one book was Madison, my director's, my dissertation director's book called Introducing Moral Theology, and his his book is major, mainly an introduction to the, the, the virtue ethics strand of Catholic moral theology. And over time, I realized that while his book was very um, useful in that regard, I needed to have more of um, the foundations, the stuff about natural law and how the Catholic Church authenticates its moral claims, which is not the central part of Madison's book. And so I started using another book uh, by Montague Brown called The Quest for Moral Foundations, which is about um, meta-ethics and how we how we authenticate moral claims as ethicists. And then as I went on further, I realized that I was thin on Catholic social teaching, because although that comes up in a fragmented way in both books, it's not the central part of either Madison or Brown. So I started using a book, a book by uh, Zalit and Glavin called Catholic Ethics in Today's World, and that is an introduction basically, basically to Catholic social teaching. And then as, as, as time went on, I realized I was also, I was still thin on bioethics. So there's all the stuff in Catholic moral theology that has to do with uh, not just the big issues like contraception and abortion, but also commercial surrogacy, euthanasia, assisted suicide, organ donation, the numerous issues that are confronted in Catholic bioethics. So I started using yet another book by Nicanor Ostriaco uh, called Biomedicine and Beatitude. And so at this point, we're up to four books. And there's quite a bit of overlap between the four books. And what I'm trying to get basically out of each one is what is the focal point of each one, which is in Brown's book is the, the natural law, and in Madison's is virtue, and in Glavin's and Zalit's is uh, Catholic social teaching, and in Nicanor's is bioethics. And so that was somewhat you know piecemeal together, and it made me realize that what was needed was a book that dealt with all four of them and also about the integration between them. And that ended up becoming my book, uh, An Introduction to Catholic Ethics and Vatican II, because what I realized through using these four books over time was that what I was dealing with was basically the four principal parts of Catholic ethics since Vatican II. And what was needed was a book that, that treated all four without without giving pride of place to any of the four, but just kind of looking at all of them, um, um, the main lines uh, of, of all four, and talking a little bit about the integration and how they connect to each other, but giving uh, kind of a, 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 a part to each one. And so the book really grew out of my experience in teaching those Catholic moral theology courses and trying to piecemeal together those four main areas that I wanted to cover. So, so what I ended up doing was basically writing the book um, with that purpose in mind, uh, trying to string together the, uh, the those four areas into one you know, systematic, comprehensive text. Well, I I think you did an excellent job of of doing that. And for our listeners, one thing you may have noticed, Drew was talking about, you know, he read these four books and was trying to come up with the main point of each and integrate. There's something I think, and I don't know if it's the influence of Aquinas, but I always find this interesting when talking to theologians who are working within that tradition is there's to number things (laughs) And, and then to make it, and that makes it so clear to understand what they're talking about. Yeah, that was well. That was a very intentional part of it because I mean that was another motivation going into the book is that as something I learned when I was doing my PhD work was that you know Catholic ethics since Vatican II, um, you know, it's really there's a there's a lot of confusion to be quite candid about it as to what are the what is Catholic ethics since Vatican II. Uh, and it, it just tends to be divided along these disparate topics of different things that Catholic moral theologians in the last 60 years have argued about. And so it can get very confusing because one starts to wonder how these things connect with each other. So, so yeah, I tried to present it systematically um, in a way that invites people into the type of conversation that moral theologians are, are having, um, but gives also a broad overview of it was such a huge range of material so that people don't get lost on that, that journey. 
Well, and I think it works very well, especially since this is aimed at um, at largely, I mean, an undergraduate yeah, right. audience. Yeah, that's who I'm thinking of, mainly as I'm, as I'm writing. And I was writing about people who did not have a formal background in studying Catholic moral theology or Catholic ethics. And to them, it all just seemed like a jumbled category of all these different things. I was trying to put that into some sort of structure where the mind can, can latch onto it. And so, um, and kind of going along with this uh, this issue of you know using numbers to to categorize things in your introduction, you talk about you have these four goals and three objectives for this book. I wonder if you could kind of give our our listeners a, a summary of what you mean by the you know what this book is trying to accomplish through its four goals and three objectives. Sure, yeah, I'd be happy to do that. Um, yeah, so basically, I mean, I start out the introduction by discussing the, the document Umane Salutis, which is what initiated the, the Second Vatican Council. And part of what that that document speaks to is having to discern the signs of the times. And the times they're thinking about are 1962 to 1965. But the Catholic Church is called to be uh, constantly trying to understand itself, its nature, its mission, um, in the situation in which it finds itself, and hence the, the subtitle of the fourth, you know, the pastoral constitution of the Second Vatican Council, Gavin Espez, the church in the modern world, or what is the modern world. Um, and so the way that I explain it in the introduction is basically the church finds itself amidst these, um, these three um, different social manifestations that problematize the communication of Catholic ethics. And those three things are postmodernism, uh, secularism, and liberalism. And so by postmodernism, uh, and I, people have different definitions of postmodernism. So what I, what I mean when I say postmodernism, at least in that context there, of, of what I think Umane Salutis is responding to, um, and I quote here St. John Paul II's Fides et Ratio, uh, basically postmodernism here means the idea that all truth claims are equally valid. Um, and if that's the case, then of course that leads us to uh, a sort of ethical relativism, which is something that I critique in the book. I don't say that, that ethical relativism or moral relativism has nothing to commend, but I do say that it's not enough to form a foundation for moral judgments and responsibility. And so the idea that there is no truth or that we can't search after truth, that there's no truth to be had, is is a problem for, for Catholic ethics. Um, the second thing is, uh, I forget how I looked at this, secularism and liberalism, or liberalism and secularism, but basically, um, liberalism, the way I define liberalism here, it's not referring to a political ideology as much as it is um, an understanding of freedom divorced from the pursuit of moral goodness. And uh, again, this kind of is... Uh, has a similar ethos to that behind postmodernism, insofar as it creates a lack of lack of confidence in in the good. So postmodernism says there's no such thing as the true, and liberalism says there's no such thing as the good. Good only means what you happen to find pleasing or what you happen to like, and that produces a particular understanding of freedom. Freedom means the freedom to do what I want without any external restraints um, and service painters who I reference throughout the book um, he called this type of freedom the freedom of indifference where freedom is defined as just the power to choose between contraries um, and he contrasted this with what he called freedom for excellence which means the power to act freely with excellence and perfection and in that sort of a worldview there is such a thing as good and evil and to choose evil denotes a lack of freedom, um, as opposed to freedom of indifference. So, uh, so that's the second factor 
that complicates the communication of Catholic ethics in the modern world is that we don't have a robust sense of the good or what the good entails because we have an understanding of freedom that's divorced from moral goodness. And then the third uh, problematizing factor is um, that contemporary society is secular. So in that sort of a worldview, faith is regarded as a kind of private sentimentality that you're supposed to keep to yourself. Um, it's not supposed to have a constructive role or deemed as having a constructive role in informing social and political life. So whereas liberalism is supposed to give us greater freedom, secularism is supposed to be a unifying force, the idea being that traditional religious worldviews are divisive and lead only to conflict. And so um, the authors of secularism thought that we should construct a society that's built solely on secular foundations and that by leaving our faith out of our public lives, we'd get along better as a society and be able to recognize a wider scope of, of human dignity. Um, and so I argue basically that there's these three problematizing forces um, that, are, that are at work. Um, and that what I'm trying to narrate in this book is the Catholic response to these forces. And I say that in response to postmodernism and liberalism, Catholic moral theology, Catholic ethics in the last 60 years has been trying to remind us that it's natural for the human mind to look for and to love what's true and good. So this is a reaffirmation of these central concepts, both philosophical and theological, of the true and the good. And in response to secular secularism, Catholic ethics reiterates that human dignity rests above all on the fact that humanity is called to communion with God and that this enjoins us to make ourselves the neighbor of every individual. And our neighbor here is not to be regarded as a means to some selfish end, but as another self. So in short, then, the Catholic response to the crisis of contemporary ethics is to proclaim Christ. Um, and so with all those things being said, that's what ends up forming the outline for the four uh, preliminary, I call them the preliminary goals of the book that also makes the four-part structure, as you mentioned with the numbers. So the first preliminary goal, then, is to make clear how the Catholic moral tradition understands the possession and pursuit of ethical truth. So that ends up being about natural law and revelation with the relationship of those things. The second preliminary goal uh, is to demonstrate how the Catholic Church understands the, the good of the individual in a descriptive sense, but also a normative sense. What characteristics or features are descriptive of a good soul, of a virtuous soul? And then the third preliminary goal is to elucidate how the Catholic moral tradition understands the good of society. Um, so it's not just it's not enough just to talk about what are the features of a good individual, also what are the features of a just society, and then what's the relationship between a just society and a just individual. And then finally, the fourth and final goal is to gain an appreciation of what I call the principle of universal human dignity, and I believe that this differentiates uh, Catholic bioethics, bioethics is conceived from within the Catholic moral tradition from all other forms of bioethics, is it's a fundamental and unwavering principle, uh, commitment to the idea that all human beings are made in the image of God, there's no such thing as as God's not chosen people or God's God's no people, that we're all God's people, and we're all made of the image of God, and that includes from uh, from the moment we're conceived to natural death, and no one is excluded from that category. And I contrast that view with the assumption of selective human dignity, which is basically the view that you know some people have dignity and rights and other people don't based on different criteria. It's been erected philosophically and legally in the past 50 years. And so those, are, those end up forming the four preliminary goals of the book, which are basically a, a kind of... A kind of uh, a defense of the Catholic moral tradition in the form of a dialogue with those things that are opposed to it. Um, and then I see as overseeing this whole process of elucidating these four goals, uh, three what I call governing objectives. And those are, like I said before, the first one is to provide a comprehensive introduction to the Catholic moral tradition. So for those who just aren't familiar with how the Catholic Church reasons, how it thinks, how it forms and authenticates its moral claims, 
what those claims are with regard to the individual, with regard to society, with regard to dignity. Uh, the book provides a comprehensive, comprehensive introduction to those things. The second governing objective is after having read and digested the material in the book, the reader will be able to think about what are the connections between these four principal areas. So one of the things with the books I was using before, you know, uh, Montague Brown basically assumes the primacy of natural law and his moral reasoning, particularly the new natural law theory as uh, introduced by uh, Phoenix and Griset. Madison uh, basically uses Thomistic virtue ethics as the, the foundation for what he does. In Guaven's book, the emphasis is Catholic social teaching, and in Austriaco's, it's bioethics. So what, what, what they all kind of assume a starting point for doing Catholic ethics um, based on their own disciplines. What I'm trying to do is bring the reader to a place where maybe they don't know which of the four is the most important, but they're able to start thinking about that and having conversations um, about how they think these four things fit together. Uh, and then the third governing objective, and really I would probably call it the central objective, if, you, if I had to reduce the, my writing of this book down to one central thing, is to try and introduce or uncover the reader to the essence or animating spirit of, of Catholic ethics, which I, I talk about mainly in the epilogue, drawing on everything that's come before. And I say basically that if I had to, if you had to sum up um, Catholic ethics since Vatican II, Catholic moral theology, the development of the tradition, the virtues, the natural law, all the debates, the controversies, the Catholic social teaching, all of it. If you had to sum it all up and say, what is the one animating thing that, that's the golden cord weaving through all of the Catholic moral tradition, not just since Vatican II, but also before, I'd say it's hope. It's hope. It's the idea of uh, striving toward uh, perfection and unity with God. Um, and so that's the, the main kind of governing objective is that I would hope that if someone reads this book, whether it's it's for a class and they're being made to read it, or whether they're reading it in an RCIA setting because they're trying to learn about the Catholic moral tradition, or they're just reading it on their own because 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 I mean sometimes I've known I've met several people who have said to me that they feel like they want to convert. I myself am an adult convert. I converted to the Catholic Church, like I said, when I was um, an adult. And I've met several people who felt called to, to convert to the Catholic Church, at, but the things that they were hung up on were moral issues, ethical issues, political issues. And so my hope is that someone who reads this book, who found the Catholic moral tradition or Catholic ethics to be an obstacle to their appreciation of the Catholic faith, that this book would do the opposite. This book would characterize the Catholic moral tradition and Catholic ethics in a way that's inviting and helps them to see the beauty of, of the Catholic faith. And that, that concludes that ancient trio of truth, goodness, and beauty. Uh, because I think at the end of the day, that's, that's what we're talking about when we're talking about Catholic ethics. We're talking about a tradition that has a particular conception of the true, the good, and the beautiful, and is trying to communicate that in the form of moral principles to a world that, that is badly in need of, of receiving it. And what's been a problem and continues to be a problem is, is that communication. So I'm trying to, trying to do that in this book. Uh, excellent, excellent. Well, now our, our listeners have a very thorough, I think, understanding of what you're trying to do in this book. So I wonder if we could we could then move into how you're doing it by just taking a, a look at some of your chapters. Sure. So you, you begin with this chapter one, not talking about the, the Catholic tradition itself so much, but about moral relativism. So I'm right. curious, why did you decide to do that, to start off not with Catholicism, but with something else? Yeah. Well, the reason why I did that is because... I found that in my experience, both both teaching and then in terms of private conversations that I have with, with, with friends of mine, people I know, moral relativism is the water that we swim around in all day. Our society is a relativistic society. Uh, so moral relativism is the default position 
um, when you get into an argument with someone who's not a professional ethicist, or sometimes even people who are professional ethicists, it's not too long, and this is certainly the case in a classroom setting, before someone says basically, well, that's your point of view, and this is my point of view, and that's an end, and there's an end to the matter. Um, and uh, that's, that statement that says that you can't get beyond conflicting point of views is a, is a relativistic, subjectivist statement. You'd never say that with respect to debates that happen in the natural sciences or other fields. You'd say, okay, well, where there's significant disagreement, we need to find out why there's significant disagreement and try to work towards a greater share of, of truth or reality or whatever it is we're searching after. You wouldn't just say, well, the conversation's over because there's disagreement. People in the theoretical sciences who disagree about string theory versus quantum loop gravity don't just say, well, there's different theories, so it's the end, because we're both right, because we both have different views. Um, so, so moral relativism, I find, is something that's there that basically, it's, it's on one hand, it's kind of practical, because it, put, it puts an end to the conversation. And very often, with respect to moral issues, the conversations get heated, and so this is a way to somewhat politely end the conversation. Um, but I find that uh, I think that's that's kind of a temptation that we should avoid. The, the moral theologian Lisa Sol Cahill says that moral relativism enervates real communication, and I think that's true. I mean, it basically says, and it's it's an ironic thing because we get so impassioned about our moral arguments. When we're having a moral disagreement, it gets much more serious and intense than if we're disagreeing about, you know, who our favorite sports team, which sports team is the best, or something like that, that is subjective. It becomes very heated, which indicates to me that there's something real and important that's going on there, that we, we strongly hold to these certain beliefs. So so I, I don't think we're, we're actually as content as we we make what we pretend to be with just saying, okay, well, that's what you think, and this is what I think, and there's an end of the matter. I think in reality, we think we're right. And I think we need to be honest about that and then try to have constructive dialogue about our assumptions, about our conclusions, about our reasoning. And so so moral relativism, um, I think, is just such a dominant way of trying to put an end to our moral conversations that I had to address it right up front. I had to say right up front, what I thought about moral relativism. And so in the chapter, I say, you know, it's not that moral relativism is completely wrong. I break moral relativism down into five major types. Cultural relativism, which is the view that all of our moral views are contingent on different cultural structures. Historical relativism, which is the view that all of our moral views are contingent on our historical circumstance. Emotivism, which is the view that all of our moral thought is just really a, a description of our subjective feelings about different things. Uh, utilitarianism, which is sometimes called consequentialism, which is the view that basically there is no moral absolute. It's just you know what's going to result from our action and what's going to produce more pleasure and avoid more pain. Um, and social contract theory, which basically relativizes relativizes morality to what the government says. And there's some truth to all of those views. There's some truth to the fact that our our moral reasoning is on some level conditioned by our, by our cultural and historical circumstances. That's true. Our emotions do play a role in our formation of moral judgments. Government and the type of law that it forms and so forth, that does shape our moral compass in some, on some level. And thinking about results and pleasure and pain and those sorts of things, those are factors as well. But my argument is that none of those independently or even really a collection of them can, sue, can serve as a, uh, a solid foundation for moral judgments and responsibility because none of them can really uh, serve to bolster the argument that there's such a thing as, as moral absolutes and that in the light of that absolute moral standard, we can adjudicate between different types of moralities. Um, and we can say that, you know, as C.S. Lewis says in the beginning of Mere Christianity, that Christian morality is superior to Nazi morality. That's not just descriptive. It's not just, oh, we're, well, there's all these different viewpoints and rival traditions, and they're all the same or they're all equally valid. Rather, some are better than others. Some have a greater share of moral truth than other ones do. And if that's the case, then we get to start making a whole lot of sense, because then we can say that the move from 
slavery being normative to the abolition of slavery was a was a positive moral development. We can say that what happens in one culture might be morally inferior to what another culture does with respect to some issue. And when we start making claims like that, then that suggests that there's some sort of moral standard. And so that suggests that we have to get beyond the easy subjectivist relativism that just says, let's not talk about our moral disagreements. Um, let's just say to each his own and let that be an end and talk about the weather. So I start out with a pretty in-depth treatment of moral relativism because I'm assuming that to be the starting point for a lot of my readers. And so in that chapter, I'm not trying to, to just completely trash that, that system of thinking. I'm trying to say that it's, it's not enough that even on its own terms, moral relativism can't really commend itself as an ethical worldview. See, with, with students, a lot, what I realize, and one of the things I invite my students to do in my classes, and that I think everyone should do, is take a step back and say, what is my, my worldview with respect to ethics? And, you know, in the formal language, what is my meta-ethics? Do I think that there's moral absolutes? Do I think that there are some things that are always wrong? Do I think that everything could be justified given some certain situation or certain consequences? And then why do I think these things? What are my authorities? Who's influencing the formation of my moral thought? Is it is it a pope? Is it a pastor? Is it a book? Is it popular culture? What is it? And a lot of students end up finding out, like, oh, yeah, I'm a moral relativist. But they didn't realize they're moral relativists. They never took, you know, a pledge or an oath to be moral, a moral relativist. They, um, that's just kind of what seeps into their mind in the, in the popular culture, this kind of to each his own mentality. And so chapter one is inviting the reader to think about the degree to which their thinking has already been influenced by morally relativistic assumptions and then to, to question whether, whether that was a good idea. Excellent. So in, in chapter two, then, having talked about some of, from a Catholic perspective, the, the problems of moral relativism, in chapter two, you introduce the Catholic sources of morality, the natural law and revelation. I wonder if you could tell us what those things are and how they relate to each other. Sure, yeah. Um, so, so having moved through what the Catholic Church does not um, endorse as a suitable foundation for moral judgments and responsibilities of moral relativism. The whole purpose of that is to try and gain a hearing for what the, for what the Catholic Church does take to be the foundation for moral judgments and responsibility, which is um, basically eternal law. So here my, my treatment becomes very Thomistic, and the idea is that there's an eternal law um, which is I mean, you could phrase it as God's view of right and wrong, not as though God has an opinion about right and wrong, but kind of the the eternal sense of what's right and what's wrong. And Aquinas says that this part of the aspects of this eternal law is that it's known to all people. We all have this innate knowledge of it, which is this really um, foundational claim of Catholic ethics. And if you think about it, you know, if, if we don't have, I mean, this is still our legal standard in many ways, if we don't have this capacity to discern between true or false or good and evil, if that's not really the, the case, then everything we say about good and bad and ethics is reduced to nonsense if it's not truly the case that we have the capacity to discern and choose between good and evil. So um, so we have this, it's, it's known to all, and it's the measure of all truth. And so the idea being here that this is essentially a moral reality, just like we try and, in the natural sciences, pursue physical or natural laws or realities in a scientific sense, the claim here within the Catholic moral tradition is that there's a moral reality that's similar to the physical reality insofar as it's subjective. It's, it is what it is. My perception of gravity doesn't change the reality of gravity. My perception is more or less right based on the degree to which it conforms to the reality. Okay? So the claim here with natural law is that it's the same with morality. It's not just that we get to invent moral rules or laws that happen to please us. Rather, it's, there's, a, there's an absolute standard of justice. There's a real right and wrong. There's a real moral reality. And the name for that in Aquinas' uh, theology is the eternal law. Now, 
our the name for our knowledge or our access to that law is the natural law. Natural law here refers to our participation um, in the divine in the divine reason, our capacity to form specific moral norms, discern between uh, good and evil, true and false. And it's it's written on our heart. Aquinas says, of course, he's drawing from the Pauline literature, but also from Aristotle and Augustine. And so the question that then arises is, okay, if we have this innate knowledge of good and evil in the form of inclinations that were the first principle of which is to pursue good and evil, then what, what does revelation do? What's the point of revelation, particularly with respect to ethics? Think about the Ten Commandments or the Beatitudes, Jesus' moral teachings, you know, the injunctions in the, in the apostolic letters. If we have this innate moral knowledge of good and evil, Right? Then why do we need authoritative moral teaching revealed by God? Why do we need God to tell us what we already know in point of fact? Why do we need God to tell us, thou shalt not kill, if it's already written into our hearts, thou shalt not kill? And there are some strands of Christianity, particularly since the Reformation, that think that that because of the fall, basically all of this innate knowledge of good and evil is erased, and we become totally depraved. So the reason why we need revelation is because it's God basically now has to start tabula rasa and tell us what good and evil is because we can't rely at all on our own conscience um, because it's been so so depraved and corrupted since since Adam. Um, that's not what the Catholic tradition says. What the Catholic tradition says is that basically revelation confirms and expands and perfects that which we can know from nature alone. It elevates it to a higher level. So if you think about it, if you think about a two, two-dimensional square, for example, if you took a two-dimensional square and then uh, formed six of them into a three-dimensional cube, that's not the negation of the square, it's not the obliteration of the square, rather the square has been taken up to a higher level. It's been formed into a new, greater synthesis. So this is basically the claim with morality, that we do have this innate, natural sense of morality because we're creatures made in the image of God. It has been diminished through sin, but not eviscerated, as some would say. And it's through revelation and through grace that it's it's elevated to a higher level. So the example I used to to make sense of this in the book is the Beatitudes. And in the Beatitudes, I, I point out how Jesus is teaching us how to avoid evil and how to pursue good. In particular, he's he's showing us what the evils that we're supposed to avoid are. And in short, they're their idolatry. There are different forms of idolatry. The worship of money, the worship of power, the worship of pleasure, the worship of honor. And the good we're to pursue is mercy and a clean heart, an authentic moral self, um, and peace. So, so, and I, I kind of draw out how I make those connections or how I think it, it fits together in that chapter. So the point ends up being then that it's not it's not as though in the Catholic moral tradition our our moral thought, our moral teaching is relativized to revelation alone. Because if that were the case, then Catholic moral thought would become just another form of relativism. It would be, well, why do Catholics believe that direct abortion is intrinsically immoral? Well, that's just because that's the Catholic point of view. Um, why do Catholics think that assisted suicide is immoral? Well, that's just the Catholic point of view. That's a, it's an article of faith. Um, and if that were the case, case then we would be relativizing um, our moral point of view to uh, a faith position. But what the Catholic Church actually says is that, no, these, these truths, um, these moral truths are communicable to any rational agent, and through our use of reason, we can we can demonstrate the truth of these claims. And what faith does is perfects and elevates um, what can be known through reason, through our reason. So, so it's not as though these are just particular claims. They're also there's a universality to them. And at least, you know, according to the Catholic Church, this is something that all human beings should be, in principle, able to recognize whether they hold a faith commitment or not. Now. 
obviously a faith commitment is going to make it easier. And so what, one of the things that this leads to, and which I discuss a great deal in the chapter, is the role of authority. Because in our, in our world today, authority is usually given a negative valuation, especially with respect to morality. And the idea is that you should think for yourself and form your own ideas. And authority is just kind of characterized as this um, obstacle that's likely to interfere with your, with your conscience. And there's, there's good reasons for that. And Gaudiumitz says, actually talks about how, look, you know, the ideal Catholic is not somebody who just does what the Church says because the Church says and doesn't think for him or herself and just follows in blind faith. Uh, Gaudiumitz says, actually says, well, no, 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 that's not, that's not what we're talking about here. However, what we are doing is challenging the assumption, the assumption that reason, um, when guided by authority, is somehow negated or there's less less value to it, which is this old Enlightenment kind of Kantian prejudice against authority. And what the Catholic Church says is, well, no, actually, you know, every tradition, every form of moral reasoning has its own authorities, has its own set of premises that are assumptions that are forming and guiding or shaping the conscience of the individual. There's a lot of people who might be blind adherents to a kind of enlightenment view that says, well, I think for myself. But when they say, I think for myself, what, what they're doing is following an instructor who's telling them to think for themselves. So there's a kind of implicit contradiction in it. So the question really isn't whether your conscience is formed or shaped to some degree by authority or whether it's not. The question is, who are your authorities? Who have you chosen? Who have you placed your trust in as someone who has the, the, the ability to give you guidance and help form or shape your conscience, because your conscience does not exist in this little vacuum by itself. It's this really confusing passage in Gaudiumet says, where it says, in, one, in the span of one paragraph, it says, our conscience is where we're alone with God, it's where we're, the, the echo of God's voice is most clearly heard, you know, I'm paraphrasing, and so it's it's speaking about the, the primacy of conscience. Then the same passage, it says, but also the conscience can err. Okay, there's such a thing as erroneous conscience. The conscience is not infallible. And this is clearly the, quite the case when we just look descriptively throughout history. The people who do horrendous things, or if we look in current events, you know, people who do horrendous things aren't doing so because they think they're wrong. They're doing it because they think they're right. They have malformed consciences. So um, the point there in Chapter 2, then, is that for in the, within the Catholic moral t- tradition, what grounds or forms the, the foundation for moral judgments and responsibility is the eternal law, our participation in which is called the natural law, which is shaped and formed by revelation as mediated to us through authorities that are trustworthy that we trust. But it's not that they do the thinking for us, but rather they assist us in a positive way in helping to form specific moral norms and shape our consciences to keep us from erring. Excellent. So so having walked us then through, you know, Catholic understandings of morality uh, in the, the second chapter, in the third chapter, you apply uh, both the Catholic understanding of morality and the more relativistic understanding to a test case by examining the novel The River Between. Uh, right. I wonder if you could kind of walk us through that. Sure, yeah. So the third chapter is the concluding chapter of the first part of the book on the on foundations. Um, and I thought it would be a good way to conclude it was to say, okay, you know, you can talk a lot in theory about, you know, different different forms of moral reasoning and relativism versus realism and so forth. Uh, but where the rubber really meets the road is in the applied aspect of it. Like, okay, let's talk about real life now and what is the real consequence of these theories. And so the the test case I use is a a, a book by an African writer called Nguji Wathiango. And it's a book called The River Between. And the premise of the book is basically that um, you have a um, a group being um, uh, not forcibly converted, but you have a, a group in Africa who are being um, converted to Christianity. And over the course of that conversion, there's different responses to the, the colonizers. And one group is interested in assimilating, and another group is interested in holding on to the 
ancient tribal practices, one of, one of which is female genital mutilation. And so what the novel narrates is the kind of struggle between, between these two groups. And what I do in the book is say, okay, well, let's, let's address this issue now from the, the different metaethical viewpoints that were laid out in Chapter 1 and Chapter 2. So the topic being then uh, female circumcision or female genital mutilation. Now, from a culturally relativistic standpoint, you can't really critique it um, as uh, a, a wrong practice. From a culturally relativistic practice uh, standpoint, there's only there's no such thing as moral better or worse. There's only difference. So from that point of view, you would just say, well, that's their culture, what their culture does. But I also point out that if you want to say that, as some might want to say, like, well, we don't like the the colonizers because they're coming in and trying to change the culture of these other people, and that's wrong. But you notice what happens there. Now you're making a right-wrong claim. From, from the standpoint of cultural relativism, or really any moral relativism, you can't say that because where are you getting your standard of right and wrong? If it's the if it's the culture of the of the colonizers to 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 colonize and to come in and replace the moral codes of indigenous peoples with their own, well, that's just what they do. That's their culture, and it's irrelevant also because there's no better or worse in terms of the mores that the colonizers are introducing and the mores of the indigenous people. They're all there's only difference in systems of moral relativism. So I say cultural relativism really doesn't give us much to say. Neither does historical relativism. Neither does emotivism, because you could have strong emotional reactions to different things in the book, um, or in the in the river between. You, you might be appalled at the practice of female genital mutilation. You might be appalled at the colonizer's lack of appreciation for the role that tradition played in the uh, serving as a cohesive social glue for the tribes. Whatever your strong emotional reaction, it really doesn't authenticate which view is right or what should have been done in that case. Utilitarianism doesn't really help us much either because in the book, trying to stop the practice ends up disintegrating a lot of the tribal loyalties and causes a lot of social upheaval. So it's unclear whether it ends up producing more pleasure or pain for the various characters in the book. I narrate it more um, specifically in the text, but it basically it produces a lot of pleasure, a lot of pain in different ways when they try and um, clamp down on the practice, but there's no way to, to really predict or quantify the kinds of, of uh, effects that, that it has. And, and social contract theory doesn't help us because this is the whole issue, is how the attempts of people that have political power to impose a morality on the people uh, basically are ineffective and really seem to indicate there's something beyond just simply the political will um, with respect to what's right and wrong. So after going through those and saying, look, you know, with, res with respect to this topic of female genital mutilation, cultural relativism, historical relativism, emotivism, utilitarianism, social contract theory, they don't really get us anywhere in terms of this very practical, very important, very significant contemporary issue. They're just unhelpful. They shut down conversation. They don't give us the ability to critique really anything. If you want to critique colonization, they don't, it doesn't help you do that. If you want to critique the practice of female genital mutilation, it doesn't help you do that. So really the relativism turn, turns out in... Uh, applied ethics to be not very helpful. At this point, I then move to natural law and revelation and say, okay, can this help us more? And I say, yeah, natural law helps us because it's pretty easy from a natural law point of view to uh, adjudicate female genital mutilation and say, well, it's just simply wrong because it, uh, uh, serves, it operates against the human inclination to procreate and further the good of the species. So, so from a natural law point of view, female genital mutilation is just out morally repugnant. Uh, they'd say, well, okay, what's the point of revelation? Well, what revelation helps us to do is understand that the method for ameliorating social ills, such as female genital mutilation, can't be merely through power. It can't be merely through kind of force or coercion. It has to be through spreading a gospel of love. It has to be through going to places where things like that are happening and 
showing the true and the good um, that 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 practices like that are a uh, distortion of and working to gradually uproot things like this in a way that's respectful of the good parts of the uh, the good things that that are there in that culture and it's really driven primarily by the people of that culture because and I, and I speak to how this is actually taking place in modern-day Kenya as we speak um, through Catholic missionary work and charity work. And then this leads me to another key claim, which is basically that, you know, if moral relativism is true, if it's true, then the only way we could work against something like FGM um, is would be to come introduce the peoples of those lands to our different Western morality that is able to recognize FGM as true, because these people on their own wouldn't be able to recognize its wrongness um, if, the, if, if cultural relativism is true, because their culture says it's okay. But what we see in reality is that there's all sorts of grassroots movements in place in modern-day Kenya to work against FGM. They just need to be empowered. We need to stand on their side. There's also systems of oppression in place that keep the practice going. It's not as though the people there don't recognize its wrongness. It's that there are certain people who benefit from the practice, and so they keep those coercive structures in place. And so my claim that, I, to me, that, that's testimony to the natural law, testimony to there being an overriding sense of, of conscience and a true right and wrong that people are able to identify, and in spite of coerced coercive social structures that, that work against the individual and his or her pursuit of, of righting those wrongs, we are, in fact, able to recognize um, and discern true from false, good from evil. So basically, I use that, that third chapter to say, here's, here's a particular instance where getting it right in terms of your moral theory really matters because... Um, you know, if we're moral relativists, then we can't really say much about FGM other than that's what happens there. Um, and I don't think that's that's enough. I think we need to, and it doesn't mean not doing self-critique either, because I also in that chapter critique colonial approaches to solving issues such as those. And those are problematic as well. So, so I think what the chapter is advocating for, really what the whole part, I mean, in one sense, the whole book, but specifically part one of the book is saying, if you had to break it down to one thing, is that there is such a thing as moral reality. There is such a thing as an objective, absolute moral law. And just like in science, when we don't opt out of the pursuit of greater truth when we reach complexity, so too with morality. We should not say, well, let's stop pursuing moral excellence. Let's stop pursuing a greater appreciation and understanding of moral reality because there's complexity and disagreement. I think it's the opposite. I think it's because there's complexity and disagreement and because it matters and is important in people's lives and it has real effects in people's ability to promote both their own happiness and happiness as un other, for others, both as individuals and members of society, we need to pursue that moral reality all the more rigorously. And I see moral relativism as a deterrent to doing that, which needs to be overcome. And I see the Catholic Church's structure of natural law perfected by revelation as a way that provides guidance for just that pursuit. So, um, as our listeners can, can note now, this is a very rich book, which you can see would be very good at um, uh, leading knowledge students to better understand these issues. But I think there's some really interesting classroom discussion. Now, in the foreword, uh, Dr. William Madison III, who you identified as one of the people who had trained you, uh, he, he wrote your foreword, and he praised your book because you didn't just deal with philosophy, you also included um, biblical teachings. And so far, we've kind of stayed in the realm of um, philosophy, so I wonder if we could skip ahead to Chapter 7, Justice in the Catholic Moral Tradition, in which case you talk about the prodigal son. Yeah. Yeah, well, so basically, you know, the I try and, you know, throughout the book have a good balance in terms of, you know, nourishing the different ideas there um, that are found in, in the book uh, with passages and references to, to Scripture. 
um, and how the Catholic moral reasoning you know, is informed by those authoritative sources. So in Chapter 7, I'm dealing with justice in the Catholic moral tradition. So, you know, you start with this really broad question, what is justice? Um, and uh, obviously there's numerous ways of answering that question, and there's different rival traditions that would define justice differently. And so I'm trying in that chapter to lay the groundwork. It's mainly here for the, the Catholic social teaching uh, that that I'm talking about how the Catholic tradition tends to think about justice. With respect to the individual, justice has to do with the, the proper harmony of the intellect and will and the passions. But then there's, there's an analogy from that to the society, what makes a society just. And in order to think about that, the um, the church, basically there's, there's four different ways you can think about justice. Um, uh, primary justice, original justice, you might say, rectificatory justice, justice is right order, and justice is rights. And these are, these are four different ways of contrasting or thinking about um, how structures in society are to operate with each other. And the principles of Catholic social teaching, which I lay out in Chapter 8, are intimately connected to these four different understandings of justice. And one of the things I also try to make clear in setting that and in, in introducing that in that topic is a theme that's very prominent in the encyclicals of um, Pope Emeritus uh, Benedict XVI, which is that the understanding of justice that's prominent in the Catholic moral tradition is grounded in love. And so that's a theme that relates back to what I'm talking about in Chapter 3 with the, the female genital mutilation. So the point is that when we're working to uproot negative social things in our own society or in other societies, this has to be motivated by love, not a sense of cultural superiority, which would not be a, a Catholic approach in my judgment. So one of the ways that I speak about the integration of justice and compa compassion in the Catholic moral tradition is through referencing the, the prodigal son. Now, there are some people who could traditionally, uh, you know, have read the story of the prodigal son as a confrontation between justice and mercy, right? So the point here, or in this, this sort of interpretation would be that, you know, the prodigal son, uh, you know, violates the familial obligations that he has. He takes his father's inheritance and, um, you know, goes and squanders it. And when he comes back, basically the father has an obligation in justice to not allow him back, um, to not for his son is dead to him. Um, and this, this point of view is really represented in that parable by the older brother who says, you know, I've been here working the whole time while he was out squandering the inheritance. What's the deal? Right. So in this point of view, then the the father in accepting the, the, the prodigal son back, you know, my son was dead. Now he's alive. He lost. Now he's found. Um, is kind of turning a blind eye to justice to saying, well, forget the demands of justice. I'm going to be compassionate instead. And in this point of view, there's a, a conflict between justice and mercy. There's a, there's a conflict between compassion and, and justice, and one has to choose one or the other. It's a very binary way of thinking about the relationship of justice and mercy. It actually goes back to a second-century thinker named Marcion, who went so far as to say that the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament are different gods, and the God of the Old Testament is the God of justice, and the God of the New Testament is the God of mercy. And I still hear a lot of people today who, perhaps without realizing it, speak in those terms of the Old Testament God of wrath and the New Testament God of love. But that's not Orthodox Christian teaching. In reality, there's one God, and the same God of justice is the God of love, or I don't know, one God. So what the prodigal son's story reveals is actually God's, um, that, that a father is the kind of archetype of God in the parable, um, or the symbol, I guess, uh, has not, it's not that he turns a blind eye to justice, it's rather that he has a greater understanding of justice than the older brother, because in saying, my son is lost, now he's found, he's recognizing the 
rectificatory justice, the restoration of the right relationship between father and son that had been broken through sin. And so this is where the whole story ends up being paradigmatic of the salvation plot of the entire you know, Christian story of God and the human race, that the true justice entails the restoration of the right order. Um, so so um, that is what informs the Catholic understanding of justice, is it's, it's enlivened by love and compassion. And so, taking it back to chapter 3 then, this is what Revelation adds. It's not just that we're forming these natural law principles where we can discern good from evil, right from wrong, for the sake of discerning good from evil, right from wrong. The whole point is that this is part of a grander story that has to do with God's love for the human race. And um, it's the point, the reason why we discern between good and evil is to help others know and love God. Excellent. So we're um, we're getting a little low on time. Uh, for our listeners, you can see we've only talked about maybe uh, just a little bit of over a third of this book, and we've been able to talk a lot. Yeah. So as you can see, this really is a, a rich work, and it's one I hope you'll consider reading and, and possibly introducing or uh, adopting for, for classroom use. Um, that being said, I do would like to hit on your epilogue. Okay. Uh, where you try and wrap all these themes together and just talk about the purpose of, of understanding Catholic moral ethics. Yeah, right. So in the epilogue, um, I talked about, you know, the uh, kind of, it's called in Catholic tradition, a universal vocation to holiness. And basically the idea is, okay, we just talked about all this stuff, right? So we just talked about the natural law, how the Catholic Church authenticates its moral claims. In the second part, which we didn't get to discuss, I talked about virtue and the different habits of character that go into moral goodness. In the third part, I talk about those principles of justice I was just talking about, and then the principles of Catholic social teaching and, you know, what they are, how they play out, just war, you know, know, how, what makes... uh, aggressive action, just, when is it unjust, and so forth. And then the whole stuff, the whole part four on, on the attitude, on, uh, you know, beginning of life decisions, end of life decisions, the dignity of the human person. So it's a lot. I just, you know, if you've gone through and read all four parts, you've just you know, read a whole, you know, a huge amount of, of material. And so in the epilogue, I'm trying to say, what is the, What's the golden thread that weaves this all together? What is the, if you had to kind of step back and say, what's the, what's the overall purpose of, to what end? What is Catholic ethics here for? And that's what I treat in the epilogue. And what it's there for is to help give the individual hope in the pursuit of the attitude. So the point here is that um, we're all called, according to Catholic teaching, to become saints. Saints aren't just like the Michael Jordans of morality. We're all called to use what God has given us to achieve the greatest amount of moral excellence possible to us. And the Catholic moral tradition, this eventuates in heaven. Heaven is not just this random reward that we're given. Heaven is intimately bound up with what it means to become a saint, what it means to achieve moral excellence. So in that sense, becoming a saint, achieving, achieving moral excellence, um, returning, achieving union with God is meant to be the ultimate goal that we order our whole lives to. And so I talk about that in the epilogue. I talk about whether that's a worthy goal, because I think that there's a lot of people in our world today with the normativity of atheism and the prevalence of agnosticism and the rise of people who say they have no religious affiliation. These are all topics I treat more in in Chapter 5 when I talk about faith. But um, I think that we live in a world where people would say, look, what should be the main governing objective of your life if you want to really achieve fulfillment? Well, make a lot of money, perhaps, or find the right job, or... Uh, something along those lines, and if your ultimate goal is is heaven, is achieving moral excellence, is achieving holiness, is becoming a saint, becoming a saint, then there might be some quarters in which that's looked down upon. So in the epilogue, I talk about what makes a goal a worthy goal, and I say it has to be difficult but possible to achieve. It has it has to be something we're naturally drawn to. It has to be something which can keep and fulfill the promises it makes to us. And it has to be something that 
there's something where the hope that we have, in achi- what we hope to gain by achieving it, there's some proportionate loss of that which we fear to lose if we fail to achieve it. I say those are the qualities of great, of worthy goals. And I talk about why heaven or trying to achieve saintliness uh, possesses those those four properties. Excellent. Excellent. So, um, well, thank you so much for your time. We, we've certainly taken a lot of it. If you'll allow me, I'd like to take a little bit more oh, to uh, ask our traditional question. So what are you working on now? Well, right now I'm actually um, working on a couple different things. Um, one is for the uh, Korean American Catholic Theological Society, which, with I, which I know you're acquainted with also. Um, <laughs> and we're working on a, uh, a project to try and talk about the contribution that the Korean-American Catholic experience can make to the wider church. In addition to that, I'm also working on another book for Cambridge called um, An Introduction to Catholic Theology, since Vatican II. So when I wrote the the first book, An Introduction to Catholic Ethics, since Vatican II, I realized that there were numerous issues that I wanted to go into greater depth in, but that it wasn't the right the right place to, to, to do so. It would actually require a separate treatment. And those are issues such as um, revelation, the nature of revelation, the sacraments, um, uh, and and a few other uh, issues that came up that, that I, I, do, I do speak about in the book, but I can't go into as, as great a depth as I would like in terms of the background without without getting way beyond the scope of, of what the book claims to do. So, so the Introduction to Catholic Theology since Vatican II is, in a way, a prequel to the Catholic ethics. It's kind of the the theological ideas about revelation and systematic theology and history and the sacraments that the Catholic ethics is situated in. And so much like when you watch movies, you know, you can appreciate a movie, and then when you go and see a prequel, it just fills in gaps about things you had wondered about in the first movie. That's kind of what what Catholic theology since Vatican II, the one I'm working on now, will hopefully do is, is fill in some of the gaps or questions that people might have about things that are in, related to, but importantly distinct from the formation of Catholic ethics in the past 50 years. Oh, wonderful. Well, hopefully we can have you um, again when you publish that. Yeah, I hope so. Oh, good deal. Well, thank you again so much, Drew. Thanks. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. And you have a good day. This has been New Books in Christian Studies. Thank you for listening, and we hope you'll come back and listen again soon.